I'm sorry I didn't, uh, you know, allow anybody to say hi to you also <laughs> before breathlessly sort of launching into this. Okay, I'm sorry. So I, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Um, I can see we're live now, so I'm assuming uh, we're broadcasting. Um, hello, everyone. Hi. Uh, welcome to the third Modern South Asian Studies seminar um, of this academic term at the University of Oxford. Um, I'm very, very sorry for this slight delay in joining. We had some technical difficulties. We all hate teams, of course, and uh, there were some problems with getting it going, but we're very, very delighted to see Manan make an appearance with this gorgeous Mughlai Azam poster behind him. So we're all sort of set to go. Um, my name is Nanika Mathur, and uh, it's my very great pleasure to be chairing uh, the seminar today with uh, Professor Ahmad. I'm going to do a very quick introduction um, of Professor Ahmad, and uh, he's going to then launch into his talk. Uh, but before I do so, uh, just a quick housekeeping announcement. Um, so Professor Emma is going to speak for about 45 to 50 minutes. You will see that there is a Q&A box, right, uh, which is open at this point. Uh, if you have any questions during uh, Professor Emma's talk, please feel free to type them in and hopefully Professor Emma can pick them up at the end of his talk. Uh, we're going to have a fairly brief Q&A of about 15 to 20 minutes after his talk um, for this sort of public end of the lecture. Um, I think, yeah, so I think that's the only sort of uh, housekeeping announcement to make. So, uh, yeah, so Professor Ahmad is Associate Professor in History at the University of Columbia. Um, his areas of specialization include intellectual history in South and Southeast Asia, critical philosophy of history, colonial, uh, colonial and anti-colonial thought. He has extensive background in digital history, in the history of archives in the global South and in the problems of access and control of digitized materials. Now, Professor Ahmed is widely published. Um, his, uh, he had a book out in 2016, uh, which was called A Book of Conquest, The Chachnama and Muslim Origins in South Asia. Um, but today he's, however, going to be talking about his brand new book, which is sort of, you know, fresh off the press um, and is already creating waves. And we're all sort of reading about it and hearing about it. Um, and so we're absolutely delighted to have him speaking to us today about this book. Um, and the book is called The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India. It was published by Harvard University Press just a few months back in late 2020. So without further ado, and with apologies again for the slight delay in, um, in starting the seminar, over to Professor Ahmed. Um, thank you, Nanika. Is everyone, are we live? Can, I, I don't know. We are live. We are live. Yeah. The world can see us? Yeah, the uh, world can see us and hear us, hopefully. Okay, because I'm, I'm getting some text messages that, that they say the events has not started. That's why I was asking. If, there, if, if the world can see us or hear us, give some indication, world. Uh, <laughs> There's a Q&A box you can write in. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I apologize. I, I apologize for um, the um, late start and I apologize that uh, I wasn't able to get my credentials sorted in the different email accounts, which, uh, which led to um, you know, our delay. So um, thank you. Uh, let me start, however, formally by thanking um, my gracious, gracious and kind uh, hosts for inviting me to your forum and giving me this opportunity to speak to you today. Uh, I'm thankful to Professor Bangha, Professor O'Hanlon, uh, Mine, Stephen Mine, Professor Mathur, and of course Claire Slatter Salter, who uh, tried her very best to help me, and I, I, I let everyone down on that end. Um, so I, it's a great honor to be here today and to talk to you um, about the work that, um, as, as uh, Professor Mathur mentioned, has uh, recently come out. 
Um, and the title of the talk today is a contrapuntal history of Hindustan. And I want to um, preface uh, what I'm going to do today just to give you overall pictures. I want to try to say a little bit about the kind of um, methodological um, framework of this talk um, and and then kind of bump jump into a little bit uh, specifics, um, mainly because I think oftentimes with book, uh, when you're introducing books to audiences, um, it's it's difficult to figure out, um, you know, what, um, how do you know? Do you give a overall picture? Do you do you, do you kind of um, jump into um, some of the details? And I thought because this is um, um, uh, a forum with students as well as scholars, um, I should um, actually give some real content. So with that, um, um, let me begin my 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 reflections today. Um, how does one think about Hindustan after colonialism. The previously colonized subject faces a stark challenge when it comes to writing history. The disciplinary histories in classrooms and research institutes are often written by erstwhile colonizers, yet are paradoxically the only legible form of recognition afforded to the colonized. The previously colonized subjects also learn history through originary myths. These myths are prevalent in Lou de Memoir, on grandmother's knees inside political, social, cultural, ethnic, and linguistic identities. These originary myths, whether or not they're inventions, do not feel as such, do not feel as inventions. They feel lived in, even natural. In the subcontinent, the radical difference between Hindus as outsiders and Muslims, um, Hindus as insiders and Muslims as outsiders is one such naturally felt history that has also significantly shaped disciplinary history. So how do we think about the history of the subcontinent when colonial historiography continues to hold such uh, discursive power? When we think of history as cause and effect, as change over time, as rise and decline, we become imbricated in the arrangement of a before and an after. The central issue for the history of the subcontinent is that our prevalent and predominant befores and afters are an inherited, inherited teleology created by the European sciences of history under colonialism. The challenge historians face is that they have to provide a history of continuity that is not ipso facto a history of stagnation or of martial determinism. The colonial episteme arranged the history of India around the notion of 5,000 years. Within this enduring idea, there were two organizing concepts, that of the golden age, which featured a majestic Hindu polity and monumental Sanskrit epics and initiated the 5,000 years of unchanging, quote, unchanging Hindu society and that of the medieval Muslim invader kings who pushed India into darkness and maintained their power through despotism. History as a field of knowledge lies at the center of these constructions of the past. The structuring of this assessment lies in an interlocking quadratic formulation that can be most succinctly expressed as follows. India's past is 5,000 years old. Uh, just FYI, I think has been updated to 12,000 years in the in the most current political regime in India. So um, India's past is 5,000 years old. During which there was a golden age best epitomized by Emperor Ashoka, who ruled over the entirety of the subcontinent. That golden age was disrupted and destroyed by Muslim invader Mahmud Ghazni, who launched 17 invasions on the subcontinent and destroyed many temples, including the temple of Somnath. Ghazni inaugurates a dark age of Muslim despotic rule with the only respite in that 
800 years of tyranny being the enlightened rule of Jalaluddin Akbar. It was British colonial rule that provided a means to an end of Muslim hegemony and the advent of liberal secularism after partition. The 5,000 years, the golden age of Ashoka, the 17 raids of Mahmud Ghazni, and the Muslim despotism, that is the central logic in the philosophy of history that has organized the colonized historiography of Hindustan. It is this episteme that needs to be properly historicized in order to undertake the project of reassessment. <clears throat> when conceptualizing how to think of Hindustan, it is important to take seriously the intellectual genealogies of history writing in Persian from the 11th to the 19th centuries and to put Europe in its quote unquote proper historical place by demonstrating how universal claims of history do specific violence to our understanding of the past in colonized geographies. At the heart of my work is a call to reassess and relearn Hindustani historical writings from the 11th century to the 20th. The need to reassess or relearn arises precisely because these texts have been rendered as biased, limited, lacking the necessary valid insights into the past or presence that they purportedly address. They are outsider text removed from the lived realities of the subcontinent. Before I turn to um, further on in my talk to kind of talk specifically about Mahmoud Ghazni, I want to start off by just gesturing a little bit about this, um, these two frameworks, these two frameworks that are codependent linked from the very inception in the colonial episteme and throughout the production of history. I contest both of these frames, but I want to make sure that we understand that um, while I'm not going to tackle the question of the, the making of Ashoka and the Golden Age, um, that project is very much um, codependent on the project that I will talk about today, which is talking about Mahmoud Ghazni. Now, when we talk about uh, Mahmoud Ghazni, it, it is important that the, within the colonial imagination, subcontinent, the subcontinent appears um, as early as the Portuguese um, arrival to be linked in, 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 this, in the sense that it is linked in its Islamic history to the history of Crusades and the history of Islam in Europe prior to the 15th century. And that's something that um, I feel has not been theoretically explored enough the linking of the, the long history of Crusades and, and how the Europe's vision of Islam within uh, Europe and, and um, in relation to the Abbasid Empire um, and, and the Ayyubids, um, how that has impacted the uh, 17th, 16th and 17th century uh, understanding of Muslim rule in the subcontinent. These, they, these, these um, geographies are somehow um, dislinked However, the entire history of Muslims in the European imagination is understood generically as one of quote unquote conquest, epitomized in the motif of the sword of Islam. This is a phrase in, um, that, that's introduced most, most importantly um, by um, Edward Gibbons. The sword, however, predates um, the 18th century. It's present in Dante Alighieri's Inferno and Walter Riley's The Life and Death of Muhammad, The Conquest of Spain which is 1637, and Thomas Carlyle's The Hero as Prophet, 1840. Modern scholarship on early Islam has foregrounded the conquest paradigm. Examples range from Philip K. Hitty's Origins of Islamic State, 1917, to H.A.R. Gibbs' The Arab Conquest in Central Asia, 1923. The paradigm of Muslim conquest creates an originary myth for all Muslim polities that they are direct descendants of the earliest period and their homeland is in Islam's foundational geography, the desert. Any Muslim polity can be understood 
through a host of concepts Europeans used to describe the earliest period of Islam, such as quote unquote tribe, raids, nomadism, and so on. So that nomenclature that is reserved for the earliest period, um, you know, need not I need not remind you, or maybe I do need to remind everyone, is used even as late as 2003 for Afghanistan and of course for um, histories of um, uh, conflict that have come since 9-11. This had, has had the anachronistic effect of freezing Islam as a quote religion of the desert, even as it, as has any other ideological or intellectual tradition, mutated, developed, matured and flourished far from its denotive place of birth. And here um, I want to quote a little bit from um, from um, Henry Myers Elliott, who, whose dates are 1808 to 1853, who was a, um, a secretary in the government of India foreign office and also responsible for the most monumental project of um, um, acquiring, excerpting and rendering Muslim, um, what he called the, the histories of Muhammad in India. Um, and this is what he, what he, how he um, kind of put it, I think succinctly. Quote, scarcely had the false prophet expired when his followers and disciples, disciples issuing from their naked deserts, where they had hitherto robbed their neighbors and quarreled among themselves, hastened to convert their hereditary feuds into the spirit of unanimity and brotherly love. The conquest of Persia was a mere prelude to further extension in the East. And though a more difficult and inhospitable country, as well as internal dissensions, checked their progress for some years afterwards, Yet it was not in the nature of things to be expected that they should long delay their attacks upon the rich and idolatrous country of India, which offered so tempting a bait to their cupidity and zeal. Now, this 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 idea um, of of the zeal of the sword is central to how um, in, in this idea of the zeal of the of the uh, of the Muslim conquest um, is this figure that I wanted to talk a little bit more about today. Um, which is Mahmud of Ghazni. The notion of Mahmud Ghazni as a foreign invader was critical to this idea of the dark age of Muslim despotic rule. There was, however, an irony in the dual configuration of Ashoka as representative of the golden age of, and Mahmud Ghazni as herald of the dark age. British archaeologists, for example, located three Ashokan edicts in Kandahar and three in Lahman. Both locations are now in Afghanistan. The inscriptions were in Greek, Aramaic, and or bilingual Greek and Aramaic. Archaeologists generally accepted that these marked the territorial reach of Ashokan governance, part of Ashoka's imperial rule, where his edicts performed the work of publicly proclaiming his vision for his polity. I quote, and the king abstains from killing living beings and other men, and those who are huntsmen and fishermen of the king have desisted from hunting. One of the, um, one of the uh, pillars um, that is in Lahman. Ashoka's Lahman is about 40 miles from Kabul and 100 miles from Ghazni. It was from Ghazni, however, that the European prototypical representative of the so-called Muslim invader came. Mahmud, whose reigns are from 998 to 1030, and who ruled from Ghazni, Kabul, and Lahore, was to British historiography the very epitome of the foreign Muslim invader. In 1776, Edward Gibbon introduced him as the first, quote, Sultan on a holy war, quote, but the principal source of his, Mahmud's, fame and riches was the holy war which he waged against the Gentus of Hindustan. In this foreign narrative, I may not consume a page and a volume would scarcely suffice to recapitu recapitulate the battles and sieges of his 12 expeditions. Note, it's 12 forgiven. 
Never was the Musliman hero dismayed by the inclemency of the seasons, the height of the mountains, the breadth of the rivers, the barrenness of the desert, the multitudes of the enemy, or the formidable array of their elephants of war. Um, I just want to shout out to Edward Gibbon um, here and, and say that as a young person in Lahore, um, with the three, um, three books um, that I could check out, three books from the British Library, I actually learned English from Edward Gibbon's um, very same text that I'm citing today. So, almost 70 years later, um, Elphinstone rewrote that passage in his 1841 History of India as to Mahmud, the undiscovered regions of India presented a wider field for romantic enterprise. The great extent of that favored country, the rumors of its accumulated treasures, the fertility of the soil, and the peculiarity of its production raise it into a land of fable in which the surrounding nations might indulge their imaginations without, <clears throat> without control. Alphonsons also in, uh, reaffirmed that Mahmud's military excursions to Lahore, Sindh, and Gujarat were for the purpose of plunder. The 17 raids quote unquote, that I quoted before, motif began its life first as the 12 raids of Mahmud of Lesney in Gibbon and in Elphinstone, who cited the authority of Barthelmy de Aberlot, Alexander Dow, and Sylvester de Sassi, all of whom wrote about the polity that emerged in Ghazni and asserted itself as a successor state to the Abbasid. It was Eliot, I mentioned earlier, who corrected the figure of the 12 raids to Mahmud of Mahmud to the now mythical 17 raids of Mahmud Ghaznavi on India. <clears throat> so Eliot's 17 raids that Mahmud waged on India would become totemic. W.W. Hunter reproduced it in a brief history of the Indian peoples in 1880, and Vincent Smith added the number to his The Oxford History of India, the, the text used for um, as a as an exam uh, textbook for all graduates from Oxford and who anyone wanted to serve um, in the Indian civil services. By 1920, everyone taking the Indian civil service exam would reflect on the 17 raids of Mahmud. Ashoka was the perfect Indian king, Mahmud the perfect Muslim invader. So I want to take this, um, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, this, this figure of, of, of uh, Mahmud's 17 raids, and I want to just um, turn a little bit to how I want to think uh, against it and, and re reframe it. And I want to do this by um, looking at a historian named Farishta, um, who was one of the, uh, who's, who's writing in the late 16th, early 17th century. And Ibrahim Adil Shah II, who is a ruler of Bijapur in the Deccan, and he's Farishta's, one of Farishta's patron. Uh, Farishta is, uh, just to, just to uh, quickly summarize, uh, is some, somewhat of a diplomat, He's a, um, he's a field physician. He's obviously a historian, which is why um, we're talking about him today. Um, but he's also someone who is, um, we can broadly understand as a literateur um, and an intellectual. And he's uh, asked by Ibrahim Adil Shah II to write the first total comprehensive history of Hindustan. He tells Farishta that no such comprehensive account existed. Quote, since the histories of the kings of Hindustan do not exist in one single volume, you should grab the pen and you grid yourself to write a book with such qualities, a book in plain language without artifice and lies. It is with this mandate that Furishta set out to compile an archive of all the histories that had come before him, all of the accounts of the different parts that would constitute the whole of Hindustan. 
In the archive available to him was the vast expanse of materials dated from the 9th to the 17th century that contain a remarkable array of histories about polity and space. Purista inherited this archive consisting the work of historians of Hindustan who shared ethical and philosophical concern. It is with this same archive that I think we can write a history of Hindustan. Um, <clears throat> when we see our, our past from the vantage point of Furishta from, from the 17th century, what we recognize is there is a substantial body of writing that constitutes a living archive for writing a history of Hindustan. We see a coherent interreferentiality, a clear sense of development of theory and a practice of doing history and a deliberate way in which the logic of history is made apparent to future generations. You're always writing history for the future. We always write history as for our other tenured colleagues. Um, so that's again a kind of a shift in the ethics, I guess, of a historian. The historian in this intellectual geography of Hindustan sees himself as an ethical servant of the governing elite, but also beholden to future generations. While he served the governing ruler, he was not in a subservient position. The historian sees as his audience a future reader who will judge his work on the ground of truthfulness and a critical approach to understanding power. As Farishtar launches his own project to write a complete history of Hindustan, rather, rather than a history of royal lineages, these ideas of history writing must have directly influenced his own thinking. To approach Farista through the lens of the historians um, who preceded him is already to dismantle the claim of colonial historiography, where these histor histories are mere repositories of fact that can only be gleaned by the European historian. What I want to foreground is Farista was deliberately participating in a comedy of historians whose work informed Farista's interpretation of history. From within such particular viewpoints of thinking about history, Farista aimed to produce a new mode of historical thinking. Farista's preface, like the preface of works before his gaze, drips with humility, recognizing his shortcomings and handicaps while confronting the monumental nature of the task ahead. I quote, in my youth, my worthless ears would often hear whispers from the sky that if the heavens have this manifest beauty and if the world is so carefully crafted, if recognizing the order of the universe is to praise the creator, then it is incumbent upon one to write such a book that will contain the doings of kings, Muslim kings, and the conditions of the elders of faith, such that the internal and external conditions of the country of Hindustan are revealed as being sustained by these fundamental groups. Farista, who um, is, is here kind of perhaps ventriloquizing a long tradition uh, within Persian and Arabic of, of voices from the above that are prompting the poet or the historian to undertake the monumental uh, work that they have to do. Um, even if we take this as a paradigmatic story, I do want to say that it's important for us to understand that he is um, engaging in it with, with respect to his own contemporary audience as well. And the way he goes about this is that he begins his history with a uh, with a prolegomena that's a that's that's uh, that's titled the beliefs quote the beliefs of the people of Hind and the accounts of the appearance of Islam in their land. And he said he starts quote among them there is no other book more significant and reliable than the Mahabharata. And he goes on to describe the text as having more than a hundred thousand verses and talks about the translations of the text. But in order to see the significance of Farishta's engagement with the Mahabharata, it's important to 
understand that Mahabharat for Farishta is a work of history. For example, when he concludes his summary account, he proclaims, God be praised, such an account of marvels and mar wonders is not contained in any history of the seven climes except from this book of Hindustan. And then he goes on to say, called Vyasa, the writer, the, the, the author he credits as the author of Mahabharata, he calls him a, quote, eyewitness to history, <clears throat> to history of the war. Frishtha argues that Vyasa not only witnessed the events, but also made his narrative useful with wise anecdotes and aphorism for his readers to ruminate upon, thus providing an ethics for the reader. And it's this duality of um, eyewitnessing, reporting, critically engaging, but also providing a, a necessary um, a necessary lesson for, for the reader that Farishta is engaged in. So having said all this, I want to, in the last few, uh, last part, um, I want to just uh, conclude my talk by talking about how Farishta reads Mahmud Ghazni, the, the titular subject of the 17 or the 12 raids that we began with. And in order to kind of think about um, Mahmud Ghazni, um, who 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 is um, who's who's found in in the colonial sources? Um, we have to kind of dial back, and what we see is that um, a lot of uh, Ghazni's um, contemporaries, um, historians and poet, actually have um, captured a much of a, much of the history that follows. And um, Professor Ramila Topper and others have written a lot about Somnath and Ghazni. So this is not grounds that I want to cover um, as if I am new to them, but I would do want to highlight how Farishta is thinking about this, um, this history that he reads from Firdosi, Faruqi, Unsiri, Biruni, Uthbi, and all of these other figures. It is this tradition that forms Farishta's intellectual geography. Looking at the past from Farishta's perspective highlights the availability and circulation of the major texts of the previous 600 years. So that's another important point that you have the circulation of these histories and, 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 and narratives of the past, um, even um, to Farishta in, in the 700, 600 years after the fact. The awareness that this was a canon of histories changes our perception of how to read them. How did Farishta deal with the availability of multiple sources of competing pictures of the past? What interpretive choices did Farishta make as a historian in accordance with or against a then canonical understanding of Mahmud. Farishta titles his section accounts of the Sultans of Lahore, particularly known as the Ghaznavi Sultans, which formally acknowledges the geography of Hindustan to encompass Lahore and Ghazni. Farishta structures his chapter in two parts. First comes the political history of events, and then he narrates anecdotes, dreams, remembrance of the principal actors of the chapter. The main sources for Farishta of the history of Sibuktagin and his son Mahmud are the ones that Farishta understands as contemporary to Mahmud. The earliest histories I mentioned uh, in passing, Gurdesi, Utbi, and then uh, slightly later, 13th and 14th century historians like Juzjani, Afi, and Mir Khan, all of these in them, Farishta relies as much as he can on what he thinks are the ones closest to Mahmud in time and the ones who can give a eyewitness account. But what we see in this micro episode and how Frista is taking this one, uh, one, one tiny bit, this is a monumental work, um, contemporary, like the critical edition is in four volumes, 
And Mahmoud of Ghazni is a is a is a you know very short five six page um, episode in it, and so I wanted to kind of focus on in, on this episode. But what we see operating is Farista's method, and how Farista takes in and recasts his predecessors' histories to shift both the meaning and the agency of past actors. As in his privileging of the Mahabharata, Farista plays out the themes of his contrapuntal history by interpolating actors, victors, and conquered into a sustained understanding of Mahmud. After narrating the family and political history of Subuktagin, Farista recounts Subuktagin's decision to advance his army against the polytheists of Hindustan. As Farista, this is in Farista's noise, a voice in 977 CE, Subuktagin conquered a few forts where, quote, where Islam had made no pathways constructed, quote, mosques and places, quote, and co collected vast riches, returning victorious to Ghazni. Sabuktagin's actions, Farista writes, alarmed Jay Paul, son of Istpal, who was, quote, a Brahmin by birth and whose polity extended Sirhan to Multan to Kashmir, unquote, and who worried that his hereditary polity would be taken, quote, by those outsiders, unquote. Sabuktagin and Jaipal clashed near Multan. The war raged for days and Farista calls attention to the bravery and skill of the young Mahmud in combat. The battle was so evenly balanced, Farista writes, that, quote, one could not differentiate between the victorious and the defeated, unquote. In that balance, an unspecified group approached the young Mahmud and told him that near Jaipal's camp was a natural spring with the miraculous power that should any impurity be thrown into it, the gods will be angered, the skies will darken, and snow and thunderstorm will appear. Mahmud ordered that manure or other impurities be immediately thrown into the spring. As foretold, an immediate darkness engulfed the battleground, and quote, a bright day became like the darkest night, unquote. And such a cold wind blew that mules and horses perished from it. Frightened by the calamitous shift in weather, Jaipal's warriors lost their courage and appealed to him to surrender to this heavenly foe. Jaipal was thus forced to appeal for peace, which Subhuktagin accepted. To get at Farista's method here, we have to first look at what Farista's sources were telling him, and then consider his own addition to this account of the past. The earliest version of the clash between Subhuktagin and Jaipal is in Utbi's Tarikha Yamani, which describes the conflict. However, in Utbi's narration, it was the young Mahmud himself who already held the knowledge that polluting the spring would bring about darkness over the land. The later historian Jizjani in the 14th century, um, in, the, in the 13th century, only mentions that Subuktagin defeated Jaipal and gives no details about the pitched battle, nor of any heavenly intervention. Afi, another contemporary of Jizjani, Jawami al-Hakayat also describes this battle in an anecdote with interesting differences. In Afi, the information that there is a sacred spring in the vicinity of the battleground is conveyed to the young Mahmud by an old woman. When Mahmud pollutes the spring, it brings a, the, about the snowstorm and the victory for Sibuktagin. The earliest account for Mutbi is the easiest to interpret. It is an homage to the young Mahmud. It demonstrates the sacral reach of a young Mahmud who can turn even the natural world of Hindustan against the polytheists. In Afi, the story invites reflection. Mahmud is not the holder of knowledge. Rather, the knowledge is held by an old woman of Hindustan. Afi places his anecdote in the section titled, quote, on the chemical properties of natural objects, unquote, thereby drawing attention not to Mahmud's sacral power, but to the natural world and its mysteries. In Juzjani, whose emphasis on tracing the descent of power from the Guri Sultans to, of Lahore and Uch, the Ghaznavi stage is of little direct importance. Juzjani simply states the outcome of the event, the victory, and moves on. 
In Freista's recounting of this history, some critical changes were made to the narrative. The motif of cooperation, often a means to invoke divine intervention, shapes Freista's narrative. Thus, Farishta's account of this first battle is a unique reconfiguration of this historical event. The Muslim army and the Hindu army are portrayed as equals. The landscape has sacral elements that cause divine intervention, and those inhabitants who lived around the battlegrounds, an unspecified group, have a stake in halting wars on them. While the markers of religious difference foreground this particular incident, Sibuktagin intends to build mosque from place to place, Frista does not spell out which sacral power was offended by the pollution of the spring. Unlike Utbi, Frista takes the glory and agency away from Mahmud and gives it to the people of Hindustan. They are the ones who knew about the spring and it's their intervention that stops the bloodshed. Juzjani in his account had endowed Mahmud's birth with divine significance. At the occasion of his birth, an idol in Wai-Hind fell over and smashed into bits. Mahmud Juzani writes, con quote, converted thousands of temples into mosques and conquered many cities of Hindustan and defeated many Rajas of Hind, unquote. However, Juzjani, writing 200 years after Mahmud's time, does not delve much into Mahmud's history. The only battle of Mahmud that Juzjani describes is the one at Somnath in Gujarat. And Juzjani writes that Mahmud brought back Manat, the idol from Somnath, and divided into four parts. One part was placed in the central mosque in Ghazna, one in the palace, and two were sent to Mecca and Medina. For Jujani's portrait of Mahmud undergoes a marked shift in Farishta. Unlike Jujani's account, Farishta describes the battle at Ghur, Multan, Tanisar, Nindona, Khwarzam, Kanoj, Mathura, Narayan, Lahore, Bal, a long history of clashes before Mahmud gets to Somnath even. In these events, Mahmud is presented as focused on building alliances where possible and destroying temples only when necessary. Afi and Mir Khawan are the most cited historians in this section, but Farishta changes the meaning and import of many of the events narrated in the section, changes that amount to a recalibration of the ways in which Mahmud can be seen as a person and a warrior. An example, just to highlight this, after his taking power in Lahore, Mahmud, this is again quoting from Farishta, um, after taking power in Lahore, Mahmud heads towards Raja Nanda of Gwalior. After a short siege by Mahmud, Nanda asks for peace with an offering of 35 elephants. Mahmud counters and asks for 300 elephants. Nanda agrees, but Farishta writes, as a test, he, Nanda, released the 300 elephants without any riders. But Mahmud's troops are able to corral the elephants, impressing Nanda. Nanda then writes in the language of Hind, again, according to um, according to Farista, a couplet for Mahmud. Mahmud shows this couplet to the literati of Hindi, Arabic and Persian at his court, and they unanimously praised it for its literary value. Duly impressed by Nanda, Mahmud consults his advisor and then grants the governorship of 15 forts, including Kalinjar to Nanda. This is not simple, certainly not a simplistic portrayal of an idol smasher who conquers and despotically rules. Um, which was to become the dominant understanding of Mahmud in later hist European historiography. Fristein, in, in fact, highlights Mahmud as responding as much to a literary exchange as to a stalemate in warfare. When we turn to Farishta's account of Somnath, we again see that it does not simply hew to what previous historians had reported. In Farishta, Mahmud decides to campaign to Somnath only after he heard reports that all of the other deities of Hindustan are subservient to the one in Somnath. And when 
the, 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 the story of Mahmoud's uh, arrival to Sovnat and then the breaking of the idols may be familiar to everyone. Um, and the pieces that were taken of Somnath back to the back to um, Kabul become an important part of European imagination, including the proclamation of Elphinstone when he brought those some gates of Somnath back to um, back to India in 1840, uh, 1842. But I want to actually say how um, Farista treats that little episode of of um, of um, uh, icon. Um, um, of breaking of the icon. Frista writes that the caretakers of the temple plead with Mahmud to spare the destruction of the idol and to instead take from them a substantial annual tax. Mahmud consults with his advisor. They agree with the caretakers' plea. Frista writes that Mahmud's advisor told him he should leave the idol alone and accept the tax, or by destroying the idol, quote, neither will the practice of idol worship end here, nor will it benefit us. Instead, this sum of money will benefit many poor. Mahmud, however, responds with a stunning articulation of his paradoxical approach to power, according to Frista. Quote, what if what you say is correct, but if I follow your advice, I will be known to posterity as idol seller and not an idol smasher. Frista documents this difference of opinion, registered 600 years prior between Mahmud's advisors who are making a mutually beneficial case and Mahmud's personal convictions as an iconoclast. Frisla is certainly clear that Mahmud makes a choice not based on what is good for either the people of Samnath nor for the people of Wazni, but one what he imagined the judgment of posterity would be on him. And it's the judgment of posterity that um, I think Frisla is able to render onto Mahmud, and that's where I want to finish with. Juzdani ends the life of Mahmud by proclaiming how his rule extended east across all of Ajam, Khurasan, Khwarzam, Tabaristan, Iraq, Nimruz, Faraskur, Tukharistan, and Turkestan. And then he died after visiting Baghdad and getting a title from the Caliph. So it's a very, you know, rags to riches story or minor riches to major riches story. Jujani celebrates Mahmud as a conqueror, ties him to the Caliphate. Farista again differs when he comes to the close the chapter of Mahmud. Farista writes that after Mahmud's campaign against Saljuk in Turkmenistan, he grew ill from either anemia or tuberculosis. Two days before his death, uh, Frista actually spends a lot of time trying to diagnose the illness, and this is you know, part of his kind of physician work. Two days before his death, he commanded that all of the treasures he had collected over his life be gathered in the compound so that it resembled a garden. This is Frista. Mahmud sat, quote, looking at them with covetous eyes and with audible gasps, cried and cried, and then ordered them to be put back in the treasury. Farishta's reckoning of Mahmud continues across several anecdotes where Mahmud is shown to be covetous, hasty, often of two minds. He is no paragon of virtue and certainly not an ideal of kingship. Instead, much of the time he's described by Farishta as harming his own nobility. Unlike Jajdani, there is no attempt by Farishta to connect Mahmud's reign to that of Baghdad, nor to glorify his memory in any way. Muhammad's history, Mahmud's history allows Farista to highlight a theme to which he repeatedly circles back, the necessity of listening to advisors, of showing kindness to civilians, of resolution through paps instead of wars. Farista highlights Mahmud's flaws as an individual as well as a king. Mahmud to Farista is brave, capricious, attentive to the judgment of history. Farista leans into that judgment to show that Mahmud's iconoclasm is no longer a point to celebrate, if it ever was. Rather, his zeal and personal drive is a story of caution. According to Frista, what is lacking for Mahmud is a sense of promoting the greater good of those he governs. 
So what we learn from examining Farista's treatment of Mahmoud is that the life of Mahmoud serves as an illustration to the imbricated history Farista is sketching, where piety does not lie with Muslim rulers alone. The past to Farista is a repository from which new ethical registers can be opened up. His history always has agents and protagonists who act according to their personal foibles and predilection and not due to grand forces of ideology or religion. Farista's mandate was to write the first comprehensive history of Hindustan. He does so by assembling an archive of histories that could span the whole geography of Hindustan, written in Persian and Arabic from the 9th to the 17th century, to which he adds histories of the places and peoples of Hindustan from epics like Mahabharat and Shahnameh. This history was not simply an amalgamation of facts, as argued by Sprenger, Iliad, and other European historians. Instead, Firsta's history was a novel interpretation of the histories that had come before him. It reflected a long genealogy of historians interested in the practice and ethics of history writing. Their accounts provide an intellectual geography that reaches across the many places of Hindustan. Um, thank you very much. I'll stop, stop here. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Manal. That was fascinating. I can see that we've already got uh, tons of questions, actually. So, um, can you hear me now? Wait. That's my speaker turned off. Sorry, I can hear. <laughs> okay. So, can you hear me now? So I was saying that we've got lots of questions for you already, and I can see them more popping into the Q&A box. Um, would you like to just take them in the order in which they've appeared, if that's OK? Uh, yeah, that's fine. So the, yeah, yeah. so um, I'm wondering, can everyone read the questions that I've published in the Q&A box? Uh, or do we need to read them out again for those? OK, I think people can read them. So um, the first one is from someone who's anonymous. Uh, could you? Sure, I can take that. It's, uh, okay. If you think Shahnama, the Zoroastrian community in India, contributed this conquest paradigm in the subcontinent, is it grant to argue that Zoroastrian refugees in India um, separate from the later translation? Um, thank you. I think the, the, the question of Shahnama as a text long predates the 19th century. It's, it's one of the most um, circulated, cited, illuminated, illustrated copy text that we have. Um, so I think even though it's only uh, much later that this idea that Shahnameh represents a type of Iran or an idea of Iran that predates Islam, um, the, the, the circulation of Shahnameh um, certainly um, it predates those kinds of interventions, historical interventions. Um, and is it used by the European thought um, in order to create this paradigm? Um, I, I think, I mean, obviously for Gibbon, Gibbon cites Shahnameh when he when he talks about um, um, talks about Mahmoud. So I think it's definitely a, a part and parcel of the, the kind of uh, the sources, the earliest sources that are used. Thank you. Um, what do you think about the, the next question is, what do you think about the distinction between Hindustan and Bharat, especially when you think about today's India? Thank you. So one of the things that I argue in the book and I, I, I'm, I'm not able to, I didn't go into it, is that Hindustan as a as a political idea and a conceptual conceptual terrain begins to undergo a shift um, over over the 18th and 19th centuries. So um, what we understand as Hindustan um, to Frista, Hindustan uh, extended from like as mentioned Kabul to Bengal, from the Himalayas to the Lanka, and uh, that understanding of Hindustan as the subcontinent uh, begins to shift in their European. 
um, rule, European imagination largely because it it's it, be, it begins to be titled um, the the Hindustan of the Mughals. So the Mughal polity and its its contraction and expansion becomes Hindustan, and then from Mughal it becomes Mohammedan India and becomes more North India, and from Mohammedan India. Um, Hindustan after the uh, arrival of British India, official British India after 1857, um, you have Hindustan largely um, as a as a idea uh, nominally associated with a type of either cultural or uh, linguistic or musical paradigms. And um, uh, the debate in the, for example, the constituent assembly of India is precisely whether India and Bharat should be the only two words mentioned um, in the constitution and not Hindustan because Hindustan was by then, by the, by the, by the mid 20th century, understood simply as an idea that belonged only to the Muslims of the North Indian corridor, largely between Bihar and, and Delhi. Um, many, so the next is many historians genuinely criticize colonial periodization. Um, for being communalized and no less insidious, but honestly, do we have any alternative methodology as such? Um, regional ethnic class based or even subaltern genre too fail to give us a substantive alternative paradigm. At the most, they prefer partial searchlights. Is this decolonial stuff proving to be sheer hot air? Um, I feel that the question that decolonial approach produces is not so much to argue for another dominant hegemonic periodization paradigm that we can finally say is the truth uh, to history. I think what it needs to, what it offers us is a way to understand and contextualize the colonial efforts to narrate the, the period through a particular um, dominant framework. So the, the, the interlocking between disciplinary history writing for whom this periodization is of primary um, importance because this is a modern South Asia seminar. I am a medieval historian, um, and yet here we are, um, is, is precisely the, the ways in which the discipline forms it uh, itself. Um, are there other ways of thinking about the past possible? Absolutely. And they're not just devolving, devolving time into smaller segments or region or space into smaller, uh, smaller geographies, but rather how we actually in incorporate um, memory and history and thinking about the past as layered or as having multiple temporalities and multiple spaces and overlapping um, historiographies that are not contentious, but are, but other are, are contrapuntal, as I tried to try to demonstrate for Frista. Um, that's I think the, the decolonial approach. Whether or not it's hot air, I mean, you know, uh, is is the colonial episteme hot air? I don't think it's hot air. Anything that um, was used actively as an agent for enslavement and destruction of human beings and of resources and of histories and past is not hot here. I don't take the colonial episteme to be simply a matter of um, historians inventing categories or J you know, James Mill's um, history of British India is not simply a text that exists in a library and has no consequences. It has immediate consequences for those of you who have read um, any of the utilitarians that follow, even including Marx and Marx's understanding. So it's not hot air. I, I don't mean to kind of, uh, but it is important for us to understand the violence that this happens. Um, I've been told there's five minutes left, sorry. <laughs> um, 
how can we distinguish between Hindustan as historiographical construction within Indo-Persian traditions and Hindustan as a place of belonging? Um, I ask because you mainly look at Urdu, Arabic, Persian. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, that's a great question. Actually, in the book, uh, not in the excerpt you heard today, I do, I do, do try my best to cast a wide net using Sanskrit, Apabhramsha, um, Persian, and Sans and um, uh, Arabic and Urdu sources. So the, there, there, there's evidence throughout the text of Hindustan's presence through different literary registers. But again, you know, one of the things that we that 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 is the invention is the idea that Sanskrit belongs to a particular uh, religious tradition or uh, Persian belongs to a particular religious tradition. And thus we can get that tradition's thoughts or belongings from that particular linguistic uh, register. Um, again, that's not something that um, we, we imagine for any other space or any other community in the entire world, but we definitely imagine that. Sanskrit, if something is in Sanskrit, it tells us about um, something called Hindu. And if something is in Persian or Urdu, it tells us about something called Muslim. That dichotomy is not internal, has not have any internal logic. It certainly has a logic according to the colonial episteme. Um, what role, if any, did the 20th history like Jadunat Sarkar and Shafat Ahmed played in the creation of Muslim and Hindu history of India? Uh, thank you, Danish. That's a great question. It actually, um, part of my introduction and conclusion deals with both uh, Jadunat Sarkar and Shafat Ahmed Khan. Uh, Jadunat Sarkar, uh, very much in his, in his, in his understanding, um, building on uh, Irvin's work, um, understood this paradigm of Muslim outsider and, uh, and an Indian native um, and reproduce that. Um, Shafad Ahmed Khan, on the other hand, who presided over the first Indian, uh, modern Indian history Congress in 1935, um, uh, whose presidential address I, I, I quote uh, in, in, the, in the last chapter or in the afterword of my book, um, actually made, a, I think, a, a remarkable um, and prescient um, a claim to the past, uh, to, the pre to the future that he was confronting where he said that the ways in which the colonial historiographic tradition has organized uh, the past of Hindustan will lead to the violence and partition of, of the subcontinent. Um, and this is, again, previous to any formal formal claim of partition that happens in the 20th century. Um, so Shafad Ahmed Khan uh, certainly is one of the historians that I, uh, I, I, I raise my attention to that who had the clarity and ethics of thinking of the future that was coming uh, towards them. Um, um, yeah. Manan, I think uh, you missed Sondra Hausner's question and we have time, don't worry. Uh, oh, we have time, okay, because there's the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the I think sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, and I think Saunders is broken into two, um, and we can take more time and we can take more questions if there are right. any. Thank you, Saunders. Thank you. Uh, so thank you. Uh, struck by how many of the tropes you narrate, conquest, nomadism, the sword, are also tropes that contemporary defenders of Hindustan use. Uh, would you? How would you help us theorize this kind of contrapoint and circulation narrative? Thank you. Um, so I think as I as I briefly indicated in my in my remarks that the the trope of the conquest. Um, that you know, within which there is a Muslim, it's the sword of Islam and a Muslim conquest actually is remarkably, remarkably um, um, coherent as a trope through the medieval European uh, rendition, and then obviously as it enters uh, disciplinary scholarship and politics in the 19th, 18th and 19th century. Um, and the idea of sword 
um, as a marker of this history is formally becomes part of textbooks. So I mentioned Wins uh, Winston Smith's work, um, but uh, all of these other textbooks, the, these other exams that are contrib contributed. Um, and you know that 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 idea, that imaginary of the sword um, and the and the temple and the camel and all, all these these ideas that are um, that stand outside any formal change, as in they 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 appear to be iconic, no matter what period uh, you're looking at, what time you're looking at, um, are taken up by contemporary politics very much from the colonial historiography, very much using the same translations, the same renditions of uh, of earlier histories, the same, in fact, the same text. So Richard Burton, for example, just to cite one person who uh, plays an oversized role in this um, in this in this historiography. Um, his his accounts of uh, of not only of Mecca and Medina but Sindh um, and also his so-called renditions of um, texts like Kama Sutra, in which the um, the Muslim harem, the Muslim woman and the harem, uh, or Lizatun Nisa. Uh, plays such an incredible role are are widely translated or republished and cited to this day. Um, people who are curious about that um, should should check out uh, Durba Mitra's um, Indian Sex Life. Um, but I think again the 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 availability of all of these narratives, the comprehensive way in which they claim to represent the past, is not a there is no anecdote antidote to that. Um, and we we just basically face this uh, monumental um, um, framing, uh, the colonial framing that has not gone away. And so that's why I, I very much hesitate with the word post-colonial and I very much appreciate decolonial and because the, these forms of thinking and knowing the past are not something that were shrugged off in any moment of independence. Um, there's one last question. Yeah, thank you for presenting to us. I wonder how this idea of Venezuela's ideas of Hind was sent in Arabic sources. Thank you. Uh, no, thank you very much for, for attending. I really appreciate your question. Um, yeah, absolutely. If we think about how um, the earlier Arabic sources um, basically thought about uh, Hindu Sindh um, or Al Hind or Al, Al Sindh, if, if we use the Arabic, um, the Hindustan uh, appears as a conceptual geography. Uh, in those early sources, so I cite them or I, I, I think through them in my chapter, thinking about the Indian Ocean world from which they emerge. Um, and what what is distinctive is that within those sources, uh, where, where, where their 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 conceptual framework is very much limited to the ports that they are these these accounts are are um, mainly about. So they're about sin, but then they have some understanding of Kashmir. They're about uh, what we we would now call um, Gujarat and a little bit interland and and the 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 kind of proper formulation of, of Hindustan as the as the entire entire subcontinent happens actually in histories like uh, uh, that I cite like Masudi etc who are thinking of Hind or Hindustan as a as a as the, as the broader as the broadest uh, subcontinental um, um, expanse. Um, so it's not so much that Arab, Arabic and Persian has um, Hind and Sindh or Hindustan, but rather different genres um, of history writing or travel writing or narratives have different understandings uh, of, of Hindustan. Fantastic. Well, I think um, 
Thank you so much, Manan. That was most brilliant talk. And thank you so much for so efficiently and engaged and in this engaged manner dealing with the questions. Uh, I don't see any more, so I think uh, we're going to end this sort of this segment of the seminar now. Um, thank you all for being here and apologies again for the slight technical issues and the delay in starting, but thank you for your questions and thank you for being part of the seminar. Um, thank, thank you from my end to all the participants. I can't see you. I don't know where you are, but thank you so much for giving some time to, to my, my words. I really, really appreciate it. Great, thank you. Um, and there's going to be a recording of this if you want to re-listen to what Professor Ahmed was saying, and that should be put up on our website quite soon. So, thank you. Bye.